welcome to No Cheese Talk. As always, this is Nathan and Balter, bringing you a piece of ideological critique with a smattering of political fact sauce. So this is our third episode that we're recording, and if you're still following us by now, it should mean that our commentary has given you some valuable insight. And if this is your first time listening to us, we invite you to listen to the previous episodes. And don't forget to stop by our gift shop, where you can have special offers on our signature cheese grater. Enjoy the grating sound in the comfort of your own home. And Nathan's sense of humor is clearly a testament to how hard it is for us to banter while facing a microphone. All right, sure. Let's just talk about the weather. <laughs> yeah, actually, I like that. And I think given the recent climate-related catastrophes, talking about the weather is starting to become quite a necessary skill for our generation. Yes, and the, uh, in politics especially, where grand promises of change have become more impactful than actual decisive action. Yeah, definitely. And uh, that leads us to today's topic, which is green politics and also the limits of a market-based response mm. to climate change. And um, to start off this discussion, uh, I think we can start with the EU, as usual. Mm -hmm. um, the EU just announced its most recent and ambitious project, that is to revitalize the push to reduce carbon emissions. The uh, 2050 European Green Deal, uh, where the affectionately called Fit for 55, is intended to be a milestone in the road towards achieving the target emissions of carbon neutrality by 2050. In this title, uh, the 55 refers to the EU emissions goal of a 55% reduction in emissions by 2030. But this seems to me a little bit optimistic because we would have to achieve in the 9 to 10 years what it has already taken us about 30 years to cut, considering the baseline of this calculation was in 1990. So I think that would definitely be a step in the right direction. But it also, yeah, it seems to be lacking something, considering that we are faced with an impending doom. So the question that immediately comes to my mind is, what have we been doing so wrong for the past decades that suddenly we're, we're only resigned to carbon neutrality by 2050, and we seem to be resigned to a two-degree rise in temperature? Yeah, and that's obviously not enough then, isn't it? Uh, the problem problem is carbon neutrality means that finally in 30 years we can stop causing more damage hmm. there's nothing about fixing the current problem and second the two degree rise in temperature does seem to be a pretty uh, nonchalant goal as if two degrees wasn't going to cause enough damage already yeah that's the question we need to address in today's episode so I do find it interesting how climate change has become such a politicized topic, but only and strictly in a limited dimension. So here I'm not talking about believers or deniers of climate change or any of that sort. Uh, I'm talking about the whole social movement which surrounds environmentalism. So for instance, uh, let's take the three R's that we were taught when we were children, uh, reduce, reuse and recycle. So the problem is not so much that the direction or the sentiment is wrong, mm -hmm. but it's a problem about the implementation, which has to always adhere to certain considerations such as the needs of the market. And uh, the market always takes precedence and therefore the desired effect is always limited. 
Well, tell me, tell me a little bit more about what you mean uh, that the three R's have not succeeded in uh, living up to the sentiment or why they have fallen short of their ideals. So let's start from the first, which is reduce. So on the one hand, we have governments which are fixed on economic stimuli, uh, boosting industries, opening new trade roads, and so on, right? Uh, but on the other hand, the same governments, uh, they're trying to educate the citizens to spend less and buy only what is necessary. Mm-hmm. So uh, this is the point where politics, I think it starts to exist in two parallel dimensions. So on the one hand, uh, we, we are representing the good citizen who earns, invests and spends uh, instead of uh, you know retreating into some form of minimalism. But then... On the other hand, uh, we have this dimension where we symbolically, uh, so to say, compensate for the side effects of the first, where we try to proclaim and act out these values instead of actually implementing them. So uh, if we take reusing, the value behind it is simply incompatible with a culture which is based on obtaining objects that promise to provide new comforts, experience, and so on, right? We have this culture of consumption and of uh, obtaining these new experiences and you simply cannot achieve that by reusing what you already have which is why we have a shopping culture so Mm -hmm. it's like a situation where there's the father who tells his child not to swear but then you can hear him do it just a minute (laughs) later there's this discrepancy by that same logic in the culture of disposability where you can't even have our iphone repaired it becomes very hard to imagine that we ever could apply these principles of reducing or reusing when the efficient and wide distribution of products, which maximize trade, depend on cheap, uh, disposable plastic packaging, for instance, except, of course, for cloth bags, which ironically serve the purpose of helping you carry more goods that you buy. (laughs) But proposals are made, green initiatives and parties are available, which try to deal with these issues. But every time, they always have to exist within a certain set of key rules. They have to act responsibly within a set of rules because it's in that structure that they hold power. For instance, uh, a constitution or international agreements, basic economics as well. One political scientist, uh, Peter Mayer, described this predicament uh, as a responsibility versus responsiveness equilibrium. On the one hand, there is this need to maintain order. And on the other, there's also this need to listen to the people and react to the changing needs of the world and of society. So, in other words, we may have reached a point where the necessary solutions are actually more radical than what our political system could actually accept. So, Mm -hmm, uh, that's not something that the middle class likes to hear. It wants status quo and ideally uh, miracle fixes to our problems. And by middle class, I mean here the class which is both committed to consuming, but on the other hand, it is also conscious of these environmental mm-hmm. repercussions. So it's stuck in the middle and needs to do something about both. And the false solution that is usually sought is to... <laughs> To pay extra to do the penance uh, with, by which they absolve themselves of this deadly sin of overconsumption. Like, uh, like donating $1 to save the rainforest when buying a pair of shoes yeah. or paying an eco contribution when buying a plane ticket. 
in order to magically offset your carbon footprint by sacrificing a little bit of extra money. Yeah, exactly. So there is this fantasy of a guilt-free consumption. And this is what maintains the greenwashing movement, right? Because it capitalizes on guilt. And I think from a marketing point of view, the reduction movement would be actually a threat. And so the entrepreneurs have to provide an alternative to simply not buying. The answer to this uh, dilemma can be observed in uh, in the West, at least, in the shift away from the goods-based economy to a service-based one. Uh, when you buy the product, which is made through a very polluting process, the company is now offering you an additional price or an experience of helping the environment. The money, therefore, has almost what you could call a fetishist value. Uh, we're adding an imaginary or mystical property to this currency by which uh, we can purchase our indulgence of uh, compensating for our consumption. Yeah, that's very well put. So the the act of not buying is actually sold to the consumer as a service. <laughs> and mm-hmm. that is the beauty of marketing. However, uh, I don't think this strictly applies to trade. Uh, it can also apply to politics mm-hmm. because at the end of the day, citizens get to pick their favorite party off the shelf. So there's the same logic going on. So uh, I'd like to, to draw our attention to green parties uh, I think we can see that they quite feed on the same greenwashing strategy in the political spectrum. So one might ask why. And I would say uh, they seize the electoral opportunity and they sell themselves as the voice of discontentment, mm-hmm. which is what the environmentally conscious consumer would like to buy. They need this service. They need this experience of saving the world. But as we said, they can only act within a certain limit, these green parties, which Mm -hmm. respects the corporate interests. So the economy still has to remain a key determining factor. And I think we saw this in Italy's five-star movement, uh, which a decade ago founded itself on a platform of various radical anti-establishment changes, including, uh, most importantly, one of what they called economic degrowth, and, and that means the intentional shrinking of the economy with the environment in mind. And while their popular call allowed for them to rise to power, they obviously changed their priorities and became more uh, centrist or appealing to a wider base, uh, to the point where today they have uh, a career politician like Giuseppe Conte as their leader. Yep, and then it becomes evident that uh, it is allowed for individuals to perform tiny gestures for the environment, such as the ones we mentioned, um, voting for green parties. But at the bigger level, change becomes much less plausible. And I can't think of another funny instance. Uh, Last month, the UK spokesperson for the COP26 presidency, uh, she infamously suggested that... uh, one way how the individual can help the environment is for people to to not rinse the dishes before dishwashing, <laughs> uh, which is, of course, uh, a petty issue compared to the much bigger issues at the industrial levels. And that maybe we should stop recycling, given her logic, uh, since we have to wash all the plastic before throwing it away. Uh, and considering how much water we waste washing vegetables, so we should also ban pesticides altogether. Uh, A system like this is built on a cycle of production, consumption, 
and absolution of the guilt, that is. Mm -hmm. Uh, But how is uh, this green economy of buying, selling, and forgiving reflected in the EU's climate policy, for instance? And where do we think we can find the seemingly inherent contradictions within the EU? Or is this clash uh, between the idea of neutrality, which we can understand in view of reduce, reuse, recycle, uh, is it opposed to the inevitable search for profit, which is an essential characteristic of a capital-driven entity like the EU? Yeah, the contradiction is naturally found in the EU structure, which is founded on the tenets of lobbying and civil society. Now, This obviously has a significant role in the democratic aspect, which is meant to be fostered. But as a side effect, it also means that any tough decision will have to be met with high resistance by one lobby or another. So it is a structure which is meant to avoid uh, both the dangers and also the occasion essentiality of some radical political change. Mm -hmm. So... I would therefore say that the fundamental element here is the notion of compromise. And uh, I think this is a perfect word to use in this case, because the word has an ambivalent definition for very good reason. So on the one hand, it means that there are these uh, classic uh, antagonistic ideas that eventually reach a consensus, so they compromise. But the word also means that uh, the objective is uh, actually weakened Mm. and undermined. So it it demonstrates that by trying to reach a compromise, we also lose track of the most important things that we're trying to reach. I think it's important to mention here exactly how intertwined the EU decision-making process is with business. I mean, the EU began as a way of mediating between coal and steel industries in France and Germany. And this background remains at the core of the EU identity even today. So basically... You can't really move away from stakeholder consultations, corporate lobbying groups, or interest groups. Mm-hmm. The council uh, will inevitably consist of member states which want to represent the interests of their major domestic industries. Uh, in Germany, the car industry, in France, airplanes, in Poland, coal, and so on. Yeah. Yeah, it's worth noting, though, that uh, there isn't a complete hostility from the industrial side towards the green legislation. So, for example, domestic industries see levies on pollutant imports as potentially acting as a dead weight on foreign competitors that export to Europe. Well, uh, one of the other new uh, so-called green initiatives, which is due to be implemented in 2023, is uh, CBAM, or Uh, the Carbon Border Adjustment Mechanism, and it addresses exactly that, imports. Since uh, in Europe there's been a a relatively high degree of regulation of carbon emissions, it was clearly easier and more profitable for companies to produce and pollute uh, elsewhere, outside of Europe. And and, uh, one of the major problems with the institution that dealt with this, which was the uh, ETS, or the Emissions Trading System, was that it only applied to companies which operated within the EU. At the same time, foreign companies could continue to work without any restrictions or regulations, and they could continue to export to the EU. This resulted in what is called uh, carbon leakage, or uh, the outsourcing of particularly dirty production like cement or steel. In 
effect, this put the EU companies at a disadvantage, actually, having to adhere to these strict regulations while still not solving carbon production problems because all of that was just moved outside of the EU's jurisdiction to China or Russia, for example. But uh, the new regulation CBAM that I just mentioned will place a tariff on foreign goods based on their carbon production. So this will hopefully, or it should, close the loophole. And so with CBAM, we have a measure by which foreign countries are, are also asked to tax the pollutive industries, or else the EU will tax them itself at the border, right? Exactly. So uh, naturally, this also trickles into wider geopolitics whenever it has to do with international trade, right? While it may, on the one hand, promise a normative shift to climate considerations by trading partners, uh, because they have to be conscious of their carbon emissions. On the other hand, it will encounter resistance from those whose interest it is to, fi- to defy EU influence, Russia as a prime example. Mm-hmm. So, green initiatives become a geopolitical ball rather than a unified global effort, it seems. Uh, there are good reasons for this. Uh, if, we, if the EU were to lead this change, uh, we can be sure that it will milk its success as a world leader for many decades to come. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's one thing. Another is that Russia's primary industries that trade with the EU are among the most polluting. Fossil fuels, gas, oil, steel. Uh, and for Russia, this, this, uh, this new proposal could easily be seen as the EU's golden political opportunity to impose sanctions on Russia uh, without actually calling sanctions or by another name. Yeah, and to make things worse in this respect, as part of the effort to combat carbon leakage, the EU is also proposing to grant uh, some internal allowances to help essential domestic industries that cannot afford to be burdened by further taxation. So the result would obviously be uh, that on the one hand, we tax carbon importation supposedly equally to how we apply it internally. But then, on the other hand, we subsidize internally for security reasons. And this adds an important element here of national security, which is regarded as taking precedence over the environmental considerations. And this naturally has to open a Pandora's box since every country has its own national interests and they can always make a claim to this particular uh, concept. Yeah, and it, it does not send an influential message if there is a mixed uh, a mix of global effort and protectionism by which the EU wants to uh, have the cake and eat it too. And, and the EU will have to defend itself from these accusations of having double standards or acting in bad faith. Now, not surprisingly, third countries, many of which are poorer than the EU, uh, protested for not having been adequately consulted on what they view essentially as some form of veiled European protectionism. But the uh, the EU does counter this uh, it, it, because uh, they still say that if you tax carbon internally, then there will be no need for the EU to impose a border tax on your products. Yeah, formally that uh, stands as a valid argument, but the problem we face at this point is this. So uninterrupted commerce has so far relied on the lax environmental standards of these third countries, and now the solution is being sought in taxation to make trade more equitable. So 
these countries have two choices. They can either change and improve these standards, or else they can pay the tax. But we can rest assured that they will choose to do the second for a very simple reason. Mm -hmm. So what they can easily do is to enact this taxation internally, by which they will avoid the EU carbon tax, but then still, what is done with that money remains a question of transparency and legitimacy, which cannot be accounted for. So how can we know that this carbon tax money is not then uh, rerouted back to these industries uh, in various, well, disingenuous, but still legal ways? Yeah, like uh, indirectly subsidizing industries in the form of government aid or Development funds, for instance. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And this money will not be traced or audited because this is also a matter of sovereignty of different countries. So it becomes clear now that uh, we always hope to find the answers to environmental and social questions uh, in capital, which is pretty much trade and taxation in this case. So in the end, we really have to, to ask who will benefit from these green initiatives, which might not be so effective. Uh, the result will be that uh, industry will continue to grow and prosper, expanding further into the greenwashing market. The politicians, or in this case the EU, will conspicuously fight the good fight, and consumers uh, pay the guilt away, especially when uh, CBAM is applied. Mm -hmm. But this experience, which is being sold to the consumer, uh, is that they are performing uh, this ritual in the logic of capitalism compensating the damaged party. But in this case, the environment doesn't accept cash. But it is nice to believe that it does. And just to bring this discussion to a close, uh, it is worth mentioning that since we have to live with each other and also to try and not kill one another, some order has to be maintained, right? And so the first priority is to perform certain rituals that uh, simply emulate our having a real solution to uh, to not shake things up too much. And unfortunately, this usually turns out to be enough for mainstream environmentalism, so it doesn't keep on pushing. And uh, after raising some level of awareness, which would be a great first step, what tends to happen is that the same awareness is capitalized on in order to produce more products exactly. that the consumer buys in order to feel better about their sense of guilt. Yeah. So it reminds me of uh, one of the Simpson episodes where Lisa tries to convert Mr. Burns and we all know what he represents, uh, the heartless money-grubbing businessman. And uh, she tries to push him towards a green business model. But what actually happens? Best of all, it's made from 100% recycled animals. Oh, you haven't changed at all. You're still evil, and when you're trying to be good, you're even more evil. I don't understand. Pigs need food, engines need coolant, dynamiters need dynamite. I'm supplying it to them at a tidy profit, and not a single sea creature was wasted. You inspired it all, little Lisa. <gasps> You inspired it all, little Lisa. <laughs> <laughs> so it turns out that people like Lisa are precisely what Mr. Burns needs to diversify his portfolio. And unlike Lisa, unfortunately, most of us are just happy with these products. Uh, for example, uh, we had gasoline, which was thought to be dirty. And so we got clean gasoline, but then we thought it was pollutant. And now we get electric cars. 
but lithium mining is going to damaging proportions and this will take us to the next campaign but what we never did was change our vision as to what constitutes our liberty as individuals and even consumers. So in an alternate universe where societies invested in reliable and efficient mass transport, they would probably think of our situation as a dystopia where individuals don't have the means to travel and they have to be burdened with uh, purchasing their own car and maintain it. So... Uh, as part of our ritual of denying our dependency on private cars and uh, our environmental impact in doing so, we have people like Elon Musk who promises to make them electric. So uh, in spite of him not being American, I think he definitely demonstrates his red, white and blue and his vision of the relationship between technology and society. <laughs> so it seems that what is important after all is that we leave a legacy of electric machines and trust funds for our children so that they can have the resources to battle the environmental problems of tomorrow. And we should all be jealous for them. That's all for this episode. We hope you found today's podcast interesting and insightful. And if you did, be sure to subscribe to our channel. And just in case you were wondering, the gift shop does not exist. Yeah.